Sunday nights we're studying the book of John, and I invite you to take a copy of God's Word and turn to the fourth book of the New Testament, the book of John. And tonight we're looking at chapter 2, beginning with verse 13. The book of John, chapter 2, we'll begin reading with verse 13. Tonight in this passage, if you're not familiar with what we're about to read, may look out of characteristic. We're seeing Jesus in a different light than a lot of people are used to or even want to see him, but it's very important that we understand what's taking place in this passage. John chapter 2, beginning with verse 13, it says, The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers sitting, sitting at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house would consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he had raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the word that you've given to us. Because, Father, through your Bible, we learn more about you. Father, we learn more about our Lord Jesus, and we learn more about how to live the Christian life. And so, Father, tonight as we take this passage, Father, as we look at this scene, help us to understand it. That, Father, as we look at this event, that we will see what Jesus is teaching and showing us even today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're studying the book of John, fourth book of the New Testament. There are four gospel accounts of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four different accounts. And each one is giving an account. There are many different things Jesus did, but each are giving the account, showing us who Jesus is. Now, since we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if there is a story in all four gospels, it's almost like a flashing light crying out to us, you need to check it out. You need to look at me. Because some stories are in Mark that may not be in Luke. There's some stories in Luke that may not be in John. But when you find a story found in all four gospels, like the resurrection, like the crucifixion, you need to focus on it. In all four gospels, we find the story of Jesus running the merchants out of the temple area. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke account, it takes place toward the end of Jesus' ministry. In fact, it takes place a few days before the crucifixion. But here in the book of John, chapter 2, we find at the beginning of his ministry. And every now and then I'll have someone ask me, Pastor, is that a contradiction? Absolutely not. There is no contradiction in the Scripture. 
What happened, it appears that Jesus did it twice. He did it at the beginning of his ministry, and he did it at the conclusion of his ministry. He did it at the beginning of his ministry, showing the authority of the, of the Messiah. He did it at the end of his ministry, again, showing his authority. And so we see some event, this event, our Lord did two times because it's so, so important. Look how John writes this. Why is John a little bit different? Look back at verse 12. As John is laying the foundation of verse 13. Remember last week we saw the, the miracle of turning the water into wine at the wedding. And then in verse 12 it says, After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and disciples, and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. And then he went to the Passover. John is doing something interesting. He's showing us the miracle of the water being turned into wine, and now he's showing us this event of driving the money changers out of the temple, and John is putting them together. That's why he uses that phrase in, in, chapter, in, in chapter 2, verse 12. He says, after this. In other words, it's almost like John is saying, I want you to take these two stories and put them together. These two stories, they're almost completely opposite. I mean, if you look at this, you can't imagine anything more opposite. There, look, notice the difference. I mean, in the wedding feast, Jesus was not acting in the limelight. In fact, he's almost hidden. He's private. In fact, only the servants and Mary knew about the miracle. But yet here in the temple, he was in the center. Everyone knew what he was doing. Everyone saw what he did. At the wedding, he's adding to the celebration. He's bringing something in to the wedding feast. He's adding something to life. But here at the temple, he's subtracting. He's throwing things out. At the wedding, he was invited to intervene. They asked him, Mary asked Jesus, could you do something about this, this problem we have? There, there's no more wine. And yet at the temple, no one asked him to intervene. But he does it anyway. At the wedding, there's joy and laughter. But at the temple, he brings anger and rebuke. At the wedding, he comforts. At the temple, he disturbs. I mean, these are two separate pictures of our Lord, and yet John brings them together. It's almost as if John is saying to us tonight, this is the same Jesus. You can't have one without the other. It may seem utterly different, but it's the same Jesus. In both cases, we see the authority of Jesus and what Jesus can do in our lives. Because if Jesus comes into your life, sometimes he will fill your table with a feast, and other times he will overturn your table to get your attention. For some, the image of Jesus overturning tables, driving the animals out is disturbing. This isn't the loving Jesus we want to hear about. A few years ago, I was talking to someone, and they actually mentioned that. They said, I don't like that image of Jesus, and I don't think that really happened. Okay, we got two problems here. Number one, you're saying something in the Bible didn't happen. Number two, you're saying which Jesus you want to pick and choose. But make no, mistakes tonight. make no mistake tonight. What John is saying is this is the same Jesus, and it's a picture we need to understand in our lives. So with that in mind, let's look at this story, this passage. And tonight I want us to look at his attitude, his action, and his authority. It begins with his attitude. Jesus is going to express righteous indignation on what he found at his father's house. Look what it says, verse 13. 
The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins and the money changers and overturned their tables. Let me explain the situation. This is the Passover. This was one of the religious feasts of the Jews. And they would make an annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem. That was required. Passover was a time of, of remembrance. It was a time of celebration. And hundreds of thousands of Jews would converge on Jerusalem. And they would sacrifice animals for their, for their sins. Over 250,000 animals would be sacrificed during this time period. This was the Passover. This was the time they remembered how God led them out of Egypt. And they would have this sacrifice, and they would have, the, they have this feast, and think about the sacrifice, and what they would do, they would have this Passover meal, and then the older son, according to the mission, the older son would look at his, to his father and says, Father, why is this night different than all the rest? And the father would tell the story of the Passover. This was a very important, sacred time to the Jews, as they remembered what God did for them while they were in Egypt. And while they were in Jerusalem, they would sacrifice, they would kill that lamb, this was a very special time. And during this important feast, Jesus goes to the temple. And what he sees angers him. There is anger in our Lord here. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, I thought anger was a sin. No, it's not. It's the type of anger that's a sin. The wrong kind of anger is sinful. The raging kind of anger that you have no control over is a sinful. When you have anger and you hurt people with your words, that's That's sinful. In fact, the Greek word is the word thumos. It means losing control, the red-faced anger, that temper anger. Yeah, that's the sinfulness. But having righteous anger of something is not. I mean, Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, be angry, but sin not. Let me be honest with you. We should be angry about some things. We should be angry at what's taking place with injustice. We should be angry at what's taking place worldwide in sex trafficking. We should be angry about people hurting children. We should be angry at the death of the unborn. We should be angry. I was talking to a pastor last week or two weeks ago in Florida, and he was telling about the sex trafficking in Florida and the young children being transported across state lines and their organizations trying to stop it. We should be angry about what's taking place. So please understand, anger is not wrong if it's righteous anger. And this is the righteous anger of Jesus. He comes into the temple. He comes into his father's house. He's seeing his father's house being desecrated. People are not worshiping him. And not only that, they were keeping people from worshiping him. And that was his attitude. There was anger. So what did he do? What was his action? Well, you have to understand where he is. It says that they found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers sitting at the table. In the temple where this is taking place, it is called the court of the Gentiles. It's a large area. This is where the Gentiles could come and worship God. They were the God-fearers, God-seekers. That is the area they would come to worship. But what has taken place, they have taken that area designated for the Gentiles to come and worship God, to come to pray to God. They have taken that and made it into a marketplace. And they were selling animals for sacrifice. And it, it was noisy and it was loud. So let, let me try to describe it to you. You have, again, the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. 
and they would line it up with tables selling animals for you to use to sacrifice. And here's why. You had to travel to Jerusalem to make the sacrifice. And many people travel hundreds of miles to come to Jerusalem. Well, if you're coming hundreds of miles, you really didn't want to bring your sacrificial animal. So you decided, I'm just going to buy it when I get there. Makes sense. A lot of times we do that on trips, don't we? Instead of buying something, we just wait till we get there. Well, that's what they would do. They would make their journey to Jerusalem, and they had to sacrifice an animal. If you were poor, it was pigeons. Others, there was lambs. And so they decided we would just wait till we get there. And so when they got there, after this long distance, they would come in, and the marketplace was selling at a high rate. I mean, it, the, the, the amount of money, according to historians, they would mark up about 16 times. So if two pigeons were, for example, 25 cents, they were selling them for $4. Not only that, to purchase the animals, you had to use the purest of silver coins. You couldn't just use any kind of money, so you had to exchange your money for the right kind of money that could be used in the temple. And so they would go, and they took their money, and they would go to the, cha- the money changers, and they would say, here's my money. I need the right kind of money. And they'd say, oh, that's, that's great. But let me tell you, there's a tax for this, and we've got to charge you extra money so we can exchange your money. Now, if you've ever been out of the country, you know what this is like. And so here you are. You're giving a, you know, here's my dollar. And they say, that's great. We'll give you change. But tell you what, we're only going to give you 50 cents back because we have to take care of our needs. So now they're exchanging their money at a, at a very high rate, and now they're buying animals at a high rate. You see the picture? Well, not only that, maybe you brought your animal. And so you would bring your animal in the temple, and someone had to examine it to be sure that it was a, a lamb without blemish. And here's the racket. You would bring the lamb, and you would hand it to this man, and he would look at the, the lamb and begin to examine it. And he would say, oh, can't use this lamb. I, I see a spot right here. You say, well, I don't see a spot. Yeah, I know, but I'm the expert. I, I see a spot right here. You can't use this lamb. I'm not going to allow it. Tell you what, you need to go buy another lamb. Well, what am I going to do with that lamb? Well, I'll buy it for you. Tell you what, I'll, I'll give you pennies on the dollar. I'll just keep the lamb. You go exchange your money. You go buy a lamb. And so you would do that. And after you leave, they would take that lamb, and they would put it in with the rest of the lamb for them to sell. This was a racket. This was crooked. It was loud. It was noisy. It would be like if right in front of the, the podium here, they would be selling animals. And you had oxen and sheep and, you had all, and all this ad, animals right in front of us. This was very loud and crooked and evil. And here the Gentiles, they're coming in, they're trying to pray, and people are arguing about money, they're arguing about the animals, they're arguing about what's taking place, they're complaining, and they're trying to pray to God, and they can't do it. Gentiles couldn't worship, but they couldn't pray. So it was disruptive, and it was crooked. When I was a child, I remember my home church, this was a long time ago, <laughs> you can imagine, I was a child, um, they wanted to get a Coke machine for the church, and a group of people blocked it because the Coke machine gave change. And they quoted this Bible verse about money changers in the church, and we couldn't get a Coke machine. 
Now, I was a child, and I'm thinking, I don't think that's right. I don't think they had Coke machines in Jesus' day. That's all I knew. I, I was a young theologian back then. But this passage is not talking about that. It's not talking about giving change. It's not talking about selling CDs in the lobby. It is talking about being a crook. It's talking about being disruptive in the worship service, keeping people from God. It's talking about being extortion, bribery, greed, and dishonesty. It's talking about making such a loud clamor that people cannot worship God. That's what Jesus was angry about. And so what does he do? Verse 15, he drives them out. It says he drove, he made a scourge of cords and drove them out of the temple. Now that word drive, drove is the same word used when Jesus cast out demons with a lot of force. He drove them out of the temple, the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins, coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Now, I know the image. Jesus has taken a whip to the money changers, but probably the whip is for the animals, okay? That's what you use a whip for. In fact, in the Greek language, that's what it implies. In the New American Standard, it says, verse 15, he made a scourge of cords and drove them. The word them is in italics. Anytime you have the word italics uh, in the Bible, that means that word is not there in the original language. It is implied. So literally, it means he made a scourge of cords and drove out all the temple, the sheep and the oxen. Here's why I think it's with the animals. It says he drove them all out. But then later on, he's talking to those still selling pigeons. So he didn't drive them all out. So who did he drive all out? He drove out all the animals. And he's overturning the tables. He's overturning the money. He made this cord of whips to drive out the animals. Now, what's fascinating to me is something that's not mentioned. Nowhere is it mentioned. In the temple, you had what they called the temple guards. They were, they were the bouncers. Their job was to be, sh- be sure that nothing disrupted the temple. They are not mentioned in the story. They should have stopped what was taking place, but they did not. Now, the question is, did the disciples stop them? I doubt it. Did the people stop them? I doubt it. I like to believe it was the sheer authority of Jesus when they saw what he was doing, they decided not to interfere. The power of our Lord Jesus as he was doing this, I think that just stopped them in their tracks. Jesus, as he is driving out the animals, as he's throwing the tables over and throwing the coins down, he said, according to the gospel, the other gospel, my house should be a house of prayer, and you've turned it into a marketplace. In fact, that's the word he uses when he's talking. Verse 16, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. That word is emporium. You've made it into a marketplace. And Jesus drove them out. He said, you're so focused. Now, actually, there's two things he's angry about. He's angry, first of all, the people they were stealing, the dishonesty. But he's also angry at other people because they were so focused on the sacrificial system, they forgot why they were worshiping. They weren't focusing on God. So right after it happens, look at verse 17. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's in the book of Psalms, chapter 69, verse 9. That's a messianic psalm. That is a psalm describing the Messiah. 
And the disciples remember that as Jesus is doing this action, as he is driving the animals out, as he is talking about the temple as his father's house, the disciples are looking at one another and say, wait a minute, do you remember the psalm that talks about the Messiah? So what about his authority? I love verse 18. Sometimes you have to ask what's not there to get the impact. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? That's not the question I would have expected. I would have expected, why are you doing this? Jesus, why are you doing this? I would have expected, what are you doing? Do you know what you're doing? Do you know you're messing with our business? Do you know what you're doing? They don't ask that. They're asking him, We see what you're doing. In fact, we know why you're doing it. By what authority are you doing it? Because here's why. They knew what Jesus was doing. Jesus was acting like the Messiah. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 and 3, it says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. They knew the prophecy. The Messiah would one one day come and, and... and run the people out of the temple. They knew the prophecy. And so here they're looking at Jesus and saying, wait a minute, you're acting like the Messiah. What is your authority? They knew that Psalm passage too. The, the disciples remember, we know what you're doing, but where's your authority? Where's your validation? Where are your credentials? Only the Messiah, only the Son of God himself had the authorization to do what you just did. Only the Messiah, only the Son of God had the authorization to say what you just said. Show us your paper. Show us your sign. Show us your authority. And Jesus does. He gives them the sign. They don't understand it, but he gives them the sign. He says in verse 19, here's my sign. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, they had no idea what he was talking about. We know that because of the next verse. The Jews said, it took 46 years to rebuild this, uh, to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? They're looking at the building saying, what are you talking about? It took us 46 years to build this, and if it's destroyed, you're going to build it yourself in three days? They, they didn't get it. John has to explain it to us in the next verse, verse 21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus is saying, do you want to know my authority? Here's my authority. This temple... I own this temple. This temple, I own it. You know how I own it? Because one day I'm going to die, and three days later I'm going to come out of the grave. And that's my temple too. And Jesus looked at the He looked at the Jews. He said, you destroyed this temple. By the way, actually what they were going to do, because they betrayed him to the Romans. You destroyed the temple. My sign is my resurrection. Again, they didn't get it. They're looking at one another and saying, what is he talking about? But it made such an impact on the Jews. They never forgot it. Even in the trials of Jesus. Remember what they said? They kept bringing it up. They said he claimed he would destroy the temple. This statement made an impact on them. But they were still thinking about the physical temple. To the Jews... The temple was the place God was sacred. And throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, we see various temples. In the Old Testament, remember the the tabernacle, 
When the people left Egypt, there was the tabernacle of God. It was a tent, a portable tent Moses set up. That represented where God was. Then they built the first temple, the first temple, Solomon Temple. We, we've talked about that in 960 B.C. That's where they housed the, the Ark of the Covenant. It was an incredible building. 150,000 workmen. It took seven years to build it. It probably cost today's market about $157 trillion to build it. You talk about a building program. And it stood until the Babylonians came and destroyed it. And to this day, we don't know where the Ark of the Covenant is. But then there was the second temple, 514 B.C. Remember Ezra and Nehemiah, when the people came out of captivity, they, they built another temple, but they were poor after returning from exile. So that time, the building was plain and drab. It was the best they could do. They always gave their best to God. About 20 years before Mary gave birth to Jesus, Herod the Great decided he would upgrade the temple. He started using about 10,000 different slaves to work on the temple. And they worked on the temple in about 63 A.D. And that temple was an incredible building. That's where the Jews said, this is where God is. And three years later, the Romans came in and destroyed that temple. And they destroyed Jerusalem. But now there's a third temple. And that is Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Colossians 2, 9, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus was talking to the woman at the well, and she was asking about which temple we worship. He said, the time is coming when true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. What he's saying, worship is not about a place, it's about a person. It's through me. I'm the new temple. Do you realize there's another temple? When you give your life to Jesus Christ, your body becomes a temple. The Holy Spirit comes within inside us, and we become a temple And Jesus, by his authority, is saying, I have the authority to do this because this is my temple. And I will prove it in my resurrection with my temple. And I will give my spirit to the believers. And that will be a temple. So how did people respond to the authority? Well, some believed, some rejected, and some had false belief. Look what it says in verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. People were believing until you get to the next verse. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. Because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. You see, some people, like the disciples, believed in Jesus. Some people, like the Pharisees, rejected Jesus. But there was another group. They had a false belief about Jesus. The Bible says Jesus did not entrust himself to them because here's why. They did not really believe he was who he was. They wanted a sign. They just didn't want a Savior. They wanted a God they could control. They wanted a Savior to entertain them. We'll see that later in the feeding of the 5,000. They love the miracles. They love the excitement of the Messiah. They just, they, they wanted him to perform in front of them, but they were not willing to follow him. And Jesus says, verse 24, it says, Jesus knew their hearts and he did not entrust himself. The person who's just wanting to follow Jesus to get something out of Jesus is not a true believer. 
John writes in 1 John 5, 12, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. Salvation is not just something intellectual. It's not believing a bunch of facts. Salvation is giving your life, your whole life to Jesus Christ. That's salvation. And this group of people, oh, they believe Jesus intellectually. They saw the miracles. They believe, oh, he must be the Messiah. But they would not give their life to him. So Jesus did not entrust himself to them. They didn't become his disciples. You see, please understand tonight, you cannot make Jesus love you by your performance. And you cannot force him to save you based on a prayer. And you cannot coerce him to redeem you based on your deeds. But you can receive him as a gift. When you recognize that he truly is the Messiah and you're willing to say, Lord, I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus is who he says he is. And I confess, I give him everything I have. Will you come into my life? Will you make that decision tonight? If you're online and you'd like to know more, just text the word today at 270-398-5005. And a minister will call you and talk about your decision. For those of you who are here, if you're here tonight, you've never given your life to Christ, tonight's the night. Maybe you're in this false belief category. Maybe you have believed God only intellectually, but you've never given him your life. Will you do that tonight? Because of who he is and his authority. Would you stand and bow your heads? Father, help us to desire Jesus. Because, Father, it seems like some people want the Christian life. They just don't want Jesus. They want joy and they want peace. They just don't want Jesus. But, Father, let us realize tonight who he is by his authority. He is the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He has the authority to come into our lives and disrupt our tables. He has the authority to change our plans. He has the authority to do whatever he desires. And we honor that because of who he is. And so, Father, tonight, if there's anyone here or listening online who needs to give their life to you in a personal way, let tonight be that night. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.